The following message is made available by First Baptist Church of Crosby, Texas. For more information or to help support our ministries, please visit us online at fbccrosby.org. Remain standing with me this morning as we continue to work through the 119th Psalm. This morning we'll be going through verses 105 to 112. Your word is a lamp to my feet and a light to my path. I have sworn an oath and confirmed it to keep your righteous rules. I am severely afflicted. Give me life, O Lord, according to your word. Accept my freewill offerings of praise, O Lord, and teach me your rules. I hold my life in my hand continually, but I do not forget your law. The wicked have laid a snare on me but I do not stray from your precepts. Your testimony are my heritage forever, for they are the joy of my heart. I incline my heart to perform your statutes forever to the end. And all God's people said, you may be seated. Would you pray with me? most holy God and Father. We gather before you this morning as a people holy and completely dependent upon you. We live, we breathe, we eat. We continue on in this earth solely because you continue to make it so. Beyond this, Father, there is nothing good in this life, no true pleasure, no lasting joy that comes from anywhere other than from your hand. And yet, Father, we confess that we are a people who are constantly seeking counterfeit pleasure, the fool's gold of this world. We find it empty every time, and yet we continue to go back. So, Father God, my request this morning is simple, that you would change our affections, that you would shape our hearts, that you would help us to truly delight in you and in your word. Father, we ask this in the name of your Son and our Savior, Jesus Christ. Amen. So as we pull up the tent stakes and begin moving again, Quite slowly, through this first chapter of Paul's letter to the church in Ephesus, I would like to direct your attention this morning to the second half of the fourth verse. We spent a little over a month working through the first half of this verse, and now I'll draw your eyes there. We read that God chose us in Christ before the foundation of the world that we should be holy and blameless before him. Now, as we spend the next few weeks together working through this magnificent text, my hope It's to show you a wonderful promise that Paul has delivered to us here in his doxology. Now, this promise, I believe, will will prove a tremendous help to you, a tremendous encouragement to you as you seek to run this long and difficult journey of faith. Now, the promise, it comes together something like this. God has chosen you for the express purpose that you would be holy and blameless. When God chose you, you were neither holy nor blameless. 
Therefore, it is by God's working that you will become holy and blameless. And God does not fail. So with that, I ask you to return to your feet, please. We continue reading this magnificent doxology together, beginning in verse 3. This is the inerrant, infallible, all-sufficient, authoritative word of God, and you must receive it as such. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places, even as he chose us in him before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and blameless before him. In love he predestined us for adoption to himself as sons through Jesus Christ, according to the purpose of his will, to the praise of his glorious grace, with which he has blessed us in the beloved. In him we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of our trespasses according to the riches of his grace, which he lavished upon us in all wisdom and insight, making known to us the mystery of his will according to the purpose which he set forth in Christ as a plan for the fullness of time to unite all things in him, things in heaven and things on earth. In him we have obtained an inheritance, having been predestined according to the purpose of him who works all things according to the counsel of his will, so that we who are the first to hope in Christ might be to the praise of his glory. In him you also, when you heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation, and believed in him, you were sealed with the promised Holy Spirit, who is the, inher- the guarantee of our inheritance until we acquire possession of it to the praise of his glory. All God's people said, Amen. You may be seated. Father God, would you make this book our ultimate delight, a great treasure, a true joy. Would you cause us to trust in your word, to walk in your word, to give ourselves over to living in obedience to your word. We ask these things in your son, our savior, in our Lord's name, Jesus Christ. Amen. So if we were able, it's not entirely possible, but if we were able to truly know our hearts, if we were able to rightly and accurately discern our own motives, our intentions, what we want most, I believe that many of us, we would be forced to confess that the assurance that God will succeed in making us holy and blameless, it can at times feel more like a threat than a promise. We know that holiness is good. We know that God's people have been called to be holy. But the enemy, he's always right there whispering, is that really what you want? Would being holy really make you happy? See, for many people, talking about believers, I dare say the vast majority of us in this room, in those unguarded moments, if we were to truly examine our hearts, look at our lives, think about our motives, we would be forced to confess that we see holiness and happiness as being in direct conflict with one another. Sure, holiness will be awesome when we get to heaven. I can't wait to arrive in heaven, and then I will forsake all the things of this world. I'll be perfectly content in that moment with holiness, but right now, I live on earth. And right now, I don't see a path to holiness that includes anything that resembles happiness. As I've said before, for the vast majority of professing Christians, this life is all about giving up the things that you want to do in exchange for the things that you're supposed to do. We know that sanctification is a part of the Christian life. We know that this is a promise that God has given us. We know that it is good, but in reality, we view it as a necessary evil. It's not something we long for. 
not something we find joyous. Again, I say we find this promise to holiness is more of a threat than an assurance. On top of this, you will often hear gospel preachers saying things like, God has called you to be holy, not happy. Now, I certainly agree with the concern here. We want to make sure that our people are guarding themselves against this constant pull of our flesh towards instant gratification. We need to refute the teaching of so many false preachers that insinuate that God would never call his people to truly suffer or live in self-denial. We need to reject that damnable lie that says that the God who is love has set us free to pursue whatever feels right to us in the moment, or whatever the world around us applauds. So it is absolutely necessary appropriate it is good for pastors to remind their people that whenever we are faced with a choice whenever we come to those moments in life and we must decide will we do what my heart says is best will I submit to the holy word of God that by the working of the spirit we must mortify the flesh we must put our sin to death by the working of that very same spirit we must walk in obedience to God So again, I fully understand and I support that sentiment. But the problem is if we don't further define it, we don't define what we mean by this, we can leave people with the unintended idea that true happiness and true holiness simply cannot coexist. Dear children, I submit to you that the scripture reveals to us that the absolute opposite of this is true. I would call you to go back and read the Beatitudes of Jesus in Matthew 5. We're told there about a people, a people who are meek. They hunger for righteousness. They are merciful. They are pure in heart. They are peacemakers. Dear friends, is this not the picture of holiness? Have I not just described to you a holy person? And Jesus Christ says that these are the truly blessed ones. These are the ones who are truly happy, those who are most holy. I want you to think about the psalm that we read each week before I stand up to preach. We've been working our way slowly through the 119th Psalm. I'll remind you that it began like this in verse 1. Blessed are those whose way is blameless, who walk in the law of the Lord. Blessed are those who keep his testimonies, who seek him with their whole heart, who also do no wrong but walk in his ways. Different, I'm asking you to actually consider what these words mean. I've told you many times that for so much of my professing Christian life, I've memorized I have read, I have recited the words of Scripture without ever giving any real thought to what they actually mean. Even more than this, how should they actually shake my life if God actually means what he's actually said? The psalmist here is describing for us a blessed person, a happy person. He says this happy person, this blessed person, he will be one whose way is blameless. Happy are the people who walk in the law of God. People who keep God's commandments and seek him with their whole heart and do no wrong. These are the people who are truly happy and blessed. Do you understand? More than this, do you believe it? Do you trust that God knows the path to true happiness? Of course, this is not the happiness of this world. This is a long way from doing whatever feels right. This is not taking hold of something just because it seems good to you in that moment. Because that's not real happiness. Church, look around you. I submit to you there has never been a time when people had it better than right now. There has never been a time in the history of the world where our circumstances were any better. 
In addition to this, there has never been a time when there were more people devoting more resources and more time to convincing you that your emotions are good and worthy, validating and babying and playing to the emotions of men. And yet, nobody's happy. Everybody's discontent. Just go and look on the internet and see the way people speak about their lives. People almost bragging like it's a contest to see who can be more anxious and more depressed and more dissatisfied and more apathetic about this life which God has given them. I'm not talking about heaven yet. I'm not talking about the fact that all the things of this world will burn away. I'm not even talking about the fact that those who are unholy will be doomed to eternal wrath before God. I'm just talking about the right here and now. Does this world seem happy to you? What about the people that have the very best of what this world has to offer? The richest and most powerful among us. Do they seem happy? I'm talking about people that literally get told no. They have all the resources this world can offer right at their disposal. Literally, whatever they want. And at best, they may be able to escape reality for a moment through sex and drugs and vacations. They may be able, if they run hard enough, they may be able to avoid the consequences of their choices for a season. But again, I ask you, do they seem happy? I submit to you, no. Because they have allowed themselves, they've allowed their hearts to become captive to the fool's gold of this world, to false pleasures, to empty happiness. I can't help but think about Edmund in the Chronicles of Narnia. The white witch come and she offers him this Turkish delight and it is so sweet upon his lips but eventually it leaves his stomach churning. It leaves him sick at his belly. Let me go beyond this and talk more personally. I think about my relationship with donuts. I keep going back. I have yet to be satisfied by a box of donuts. And yet I continue to seek pure happiness, real joy in them. Because the sins of men, it's a disordered desire. It's a false happiness. Again, I tell you, it's a fool's gold. And so this biblical happiness, this happiness which Jesus promises us, this thing which the psalmist he longs for, this is not the temporary pleasures of the flesh. It's something much more real and lasting, not dependent upon our circumstances, not held captive by our emotions. It's true, unshakable happiness. I've talked to you before about the joy about the happiness, about the security that comes when a man can stand in this place and someone could walk through that door and deliver to you the very news you least want to hear. And yet in it, through the tears, through the sorrow, through the real pain, you will continue to rejoice. You will continue to find happiness in Christ. Hebrews eleven twenty four. 24, we read this. By faith, Moses when he was grown up, he refused to be called the son of Pharaoh's daughter, choosing rather to be mistreated with the people of God than to enjoy the fleeting pleasures of sin. Dear children, would you memorize that very line? The fleeting pleasures of sin. He considered the reproach of Christ to be worth more than the treasures of Egypt, for he was looking to the reward. Moses saw what was better and he traded up the grandson of Pharaoh. Nothing would have been withheld from him, and yet he rejected it. He refused to settle. Again, that's what this picture is. It is seeing what is best and charging hard after that. 
Again, going back to the man that Jesus describes for us in Matthew 5, we're told that this man will inherit the kingdom of God. He will inherit the earth. He will see God. He will be called a son of God. He will be satisfied. Isn't that better? Isn't that better than anything your flesh can offer you in this lifetime? Isn't this the thing that will make you infinitely happier than any sin, any treasure that this world dangles before you? Don't you see? The problem isn't that we desire happiness. In the words of C.S. Lewis, the problem is that we have settled for too little. We have stopped short. That we have... We've accepted whatever little trinkets the world dangles before us, and we've accepted that must be all the happiness that we could have. That must be the epitome of pure joy. And so we chase these things that will not lead to true and lasting happiness. And in this, as we taste these things, our, des- our desires, they get disordered. We become addicted to these empty treasures, these false promises, this fool's gold of happiness. And because of that, we abandon the pursuit of real joy. Now, of course, the world doesn't want this. You go to the world and you tell them you can be satisfied in Christ Jesus. And the way that you're going to find this satisfaction is you're going to let loose of all these other things that you so dearly love. Of course, they're going to find no place for joy in this. They're not going to find that to be a wonderful promise. The kingdom of God, I don't know that there is a God. And I certainly don't know that I want to live in his kingdom. A son of God? Don't submit to such God. Don't desire to be his child. I don't desire to look like him if he is the way you say he is. As we have spent the last five weeks talking about, the world can't desire this. The world can't cause themselves to love the very thing that they hate and hate the very things that they love. But I'm talking this morning about the child of God. I'm talking about the Christian. I'm talking about you who have had your affections changed. Even we continue to go back to the very things that let us down in the first place. These things that we know leave us empty. These things that we know hold no real joy for us. We continue to go back to them. Assuming this time it's going to be different. Do you understand the foolishness in this? These things which have left us empty, we decide, well, but maybe if we just had more of the stuff, then we'd be satisfied. That's what I do with donuts. That first one left my belly a little sore. Let me try six more. Maybe then I will be happy. Maybe then I will be satisfied. Maybe then I will be fulfilled. It's absolute lunacy. And yet I tell you, not just the world, but even the children of God, we find ourselves right here. Now, before you assume that I'm just describing myself or Edmund or someone else out there, I would ask you, be honest with yourself. How much time do you spend pursuing true personal holiness compared to the time you spend pursuing the things of this world? Let me ask you another question. How often when you find yourself lacking joy and happiness, do you give even a passing thought to the fact that what you need most is to be more holy? Let me go a step further than that. How much of your prayer life is spent in truly asking God to make you holy or even to give you the desire for holiness? Now, I will confess to you that I very often pray that God would make me more holy, but then I flinch because I'm concerned about what it will cost me. I'm concerned about what are these fool's gold? What of this earthly treasures will I have to get up, give up? What will he take from me? What will the price be in exchange for true happiness in holiness? But you've got to go back to the text. Do we believe what God has actually said? 
Because what he's saying here, the Apostle Paul has recorded for us that God chose us in Christ before the foundation of the world that we should be holy and blameless before him. God literally chose you before the foundation of the world as he looked out over the course of humanity in his mind. We didn't exist in reality, and yet in the mind of God, he looked out upon sinful people, every one of us. As I said, not a one of us sinless, not a one of us holy, not a one of us blameless. He looked out upon all sinful humanity and he says, I chose you that I would make you holy and blameless. So the question is, do we really believe what we proclaim? We're the people that hold fast to the promise that the God of the universe, that his will, his working is always for his greatest glory and our greatest good. As I've tried to show you the whole of Scripture, it tells us that holiness is the only way to true happiness. So the question is, do you actually believe what God has said? Because if you do, then you will make personal holiness a priority real quick. You will pursue holiness, excuse me, happiness in holiness. But more than this, you will find this promise that God will succeed in making you holy. You will find this the very foundation of your worship. You'll be overwhelmed by a sense of joy and gratitude. You'll cry out to God with absolute sincerity. God, would you choose me to embrace this because I know this is the only path to true happiness. You'll go and grab your friends on the street and say, can you believe that the God of the universe chose me to make me happy? You'll no longer find this to be a threat. But it seems to me that the problem, the problem for most people, even professing Christians, is not just that we have a distorted, a, a worldly view of what happiness is, but that we have an even weaker view of what holiness is. So for this morning, my hope is that we would be able to just try and define that word. Now, we will only, in the time we have, as we prepare to come together to the Lord's table, we will only be able to, to just lay the foundation. Again, my plan, God willing, is to come back and expound upon this during our next gathering together, to add some color and some detail and some vibrance and some life to this promise that God is making. But the reality is that for so many people, again, so many even pro professing Christians, we have come to view holiness as nothing more than a list of things we can't do. Holiness is nothing more than restrictions on our life. And so I would remind you that I think it was week five, I think it was the fifth sermon we did in the book of Ephesians, sometime back, probably early April, something like that. We were exploring Paul's words there where he gave the greeting. He was giving the greeting to the people, and he says that he has written this to the saints who are in Ephesus. As we worked together through that greeting all those months ago, we learned that the Greek word for saint, the Greek word that's translated as saint there in verse 1, it is the very same word that is translated here in this verse is holy. Hagios is the word. A saint is a holy one. A holy one is called a saint. Now, the people to whom Paul wrote, they certainly didn't feel any more holy than you or I did. These were ordinary men and women. These were not fellow apostles. These weren't all even elders within the church. These were ordinary moms and dads and children living surrounded by spiritual darkness, continuing to struggle in the battle against their own sin and their own flesh. There were days when their desires for sin outweighed their desire for holiness. And on those days, sin won. On those days, they continued on in their sin. And yet Paul says with assurance, he says to these people to whom he writes, in fact, he says it to us as well, to all Christians everywhere, he says that you are a saint. You are already 
a holy one. But how can this be? How can this be? I look so little like the man that Jesus has described in Matthew 5. I cannot say with any sincerity that my heart matches up with the words we read in the 119th Psalm. I find myself, it seems like, constantly turning and choosing sin, choosing the empty joys of this world over real happiness in Christ Jesus. So how? How can he say that I'm truly holy? Well, part of the problem, I submit to you, is beginning with man and seeking to work our way up to God. You want to know what a thing is? Any of these communicable attributes, these ways in which we are meant to reflect God, we must begin with him and work our way downward. So you'll remember all those weeks ago that I drew your eyes to Isaiah chapter 6. You remember there that there was the prophet, and he was given this great vision. He sees the Lord seated upon his throne in his temple in his splendor, his majesty. It's overwhelming. The train of his robe, this represents his glory. It fills the entire place. It consumes the entire place. We see the majesty of the Lord on full display. But the thing that most arrested me, you may remember, the thing that most arrested me about this scene is the reaction of the heavenly beings who are there. I'm so thankful for R.C. Sproul. He's preached, he says, more sermons on that text than any other. He's got an entire book dedicated to it. I would encourage you to go and look it up. Go listen to his sermons. It has completely changed the way I think about God. It has formed the way I call you people to come into this place and worship more than perhaps anything I've ever heard before. When we think about the way that these holy angels responded before the living God, you can learn a lot about a man based on the way those who are closest to him respond when he walks into a room. And what the prophet saw on that day, it is truly incredible. It should cause us to stand in awe and cover our mouths. These angels, I, th I think they're angels. Scripture calls them seraphim. That means fiery ones. These are heavenly beings that were chosen. They were lit literally created to serve in the immediate presence of God. They're sinless. They're powerful. They're perfect. Their entire existence, their every word, their every thought, their every deed, everything that they do is designed to magnify the glory of God to celebrate the glory of God, to worship the glory of God, to proclaim to the earth the glory of God. And yet, what do we see them doing in his presence? Isaiah 6, verse 2, each had six wings. With two, he covered his face. With two, he covered his feet. And with two, he flew. And one called to another and said, Holy, holy, holy. Can y'all read that anymore without thinking about the way we sing that hymn together so frequently these days? Holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. The whole earth is filled with his glory. I've got to be careful here. I could camp out here. What I need you to see is that these holy angels, they covered their face because even they could not bear to look upon the immediate and unveiled glory of God. So great so brilliant, so majestic, so absolutely transcendent is the glory of God in all of his perfections that even these sinless heavenly beings, these chosen angels, they'd been elect among all the other angels to come into the presence of God, the very throne room of heaven. They are there serving him night and day, day and night, and even they cannot bear to look directly upon the face of God. So they covered their face. With two more wings they flew, with the other two, they covered their feet. This is a sign of creatureliness. It's a confession. No matter how pure, no matter how sinless a created being might be, 
no matter how mighty, no matter how much access and knowledge of God they might have, that there will always be a separation. There will always be a distance. There will always be a a proper order, an ordered relationship between God and his creatures. These angels, they acknowledge far better than any man ever does, you are God and we are not. You are God and we are your creatures. And dear children, you must know that this never changes. Even in the sinlessness of heaven, even in the resurrection, even when you are raised in glory, the relationship will never change. He will always be God and you will always be his creature. You will always be among the created. That all that we have, even as we are in heaven, even as we are sinless, even as we are glorious and mighty and powerful, that even then as we see him and become as he is, even then we will never forget you are God and we are not. We exist even now in heaven because of your good pleasure. We derive our existence, our sustenance, our continued existence because of you, God. Are you seeing the picture? So this is why these holy angels, they cry out, holy, holy, holy. For they are truly holy angels of God. But only the God they serve is holy, 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 infinitely holy, incomparably holy, unsurpassably holy, ground-shakingly holy. Men fall on their face and wish they were dead, holy. Only he is the trice-holy God. It is then that we realize that the holiness of God, it is much, much more than moral uprightness. Again, you can't get more perfect than perfect, and these angels are perfect. When we come to heaven, you can't get more sinless and blameless than we will be standing in heaven, and yet we still will not be as holy as he. And it's then that we begin to realize that the holiness of God is his otherness. It's the absolute uniqueness of this transcendent God, this God who is higher and greater and infinitely superior to literally everything else that is. This God who has asked his name, he says, there is nothing I can compare myself to. I am who I am. You want to compare me to someone? You must compare me to myself. You never start with man and work up to me. You never start with creation and work your way up with me. I am the I am. He is the holy, holy, holy God, and this is the true and ultimate meaning of this word, holy. Holy is different. Holy is separate. Holy is special. Holy is sacred. Holy is uncommon. Holy is untouched. Holy is unstained. Holy is unchanged by the things of this world. The glory of God, the holiness, excuse me, of God is his otherness. So then we might be tempted to wonder, well, then where do I fit into all this? You're telling me that these mighty seraphim, these holy angels, these majestic heavenly beings, they can't bear to look directly upon the face of God. They're constantly aware of their creatureliness, that they, even in their holiness, stand in awe of the infinite holiness of God. Where do I have a possible place? Because I'm a, bunch, I'm a whole lot more like Isaiah. Woe to me, I am undone. I have a man with unclean lips from a people of unclean lips. I'm not a holy angel of God. There's very little in my life that looks as holy as I know that it should. But dear friends, don't you see this is the very root of the promise? Because we see all throughout Scripture that not only does God call his angels, not only does God call men holy, but inanimate objects too. You remember all those weeks ago we talked about the patch of ground where the burning bush stood, it was holy. The tabernacle in the wilderness, God called it holy. 
The instruments, the utensils that the priest used in the temple of God, he called it holy. The Sabbath day, he called it holy. It wasn't that these things had some intrinsic otherness. Saturday was not altogether different from Tuesday. The patch of ground where Moses was told to remove his sandals, it was covered with the same dirt and the same mud and the same grass as everywhere else on that mountain. But they had been chosen by God. God had called them. He had decreed them. He had declared them to be holy. He had set these things apart to serve us to himself. Again, not because they were somehow more worthy than other tents or other lampstands or other whatever. It was because God chose them. Because God is the God who chooses According to his sovereign decree, he chose these things. He set them apart to himself as holy. And we know this is the same way that he works with men. We have this faulty illusion that our job is to run around and look just holy enough so that God might choose us. That God's looking out upon the course of humanity saying, okay, well, who looks like they've got the stuff? Something I can really work with. That's the one I'm going to choose. Why would I make my job harder than I must? But that's not the picture of Scripture at all. Go all the way back to the Old Testament. Deuteronomy 7, verse 6. For you are a people holy to the Lord your God. The Lord your God has chosen you to be a people for his treasured possession out of all the other peoples who are on the face of the earth. It was not because you were more in number than any of the other people that the Lord has set his love upon you and chosen you. For you are the fewest of all people, but it is because the Lord loves you and is keeping the oath that he swore to your fathers that the Lord has brought you out with a mighty hand and redeemed you from the house of slavery from the hand of Pharaoh, king of Egypt." God didn't choose Israel because she was holy. God didn't redeem Israel because she was holy. He redeemed her that she might be unto him a holy nation. Do you understand? God chooses the ordinary. He chooses the common. He chooses the weak and unlovable and even the unfaithful that they might be holy to him. He loves them because he loves them. That's what he just said. Do you understand this? I love you. Now, when I talk to my wife, I don't tell her, I love you because I chose to love you. But when the God of the universe says such a thing, it should cause our heart to leap because we know there's nothing lovely in us. He says, I chose you because I chose you. I chose you and I set you apart. God declares, all things belong to me. All peoples belong to me. You know, God's constantly talking about a, a specific people that belong to him or a specific people whom he knows. Do you think he doesn't know all the rest of the people in the earth? You think the rest of the people there don't belong to him? They don't operate solely and completely under his sovereign decree? Oh, dear friends, they do. But he looks to us and he says, I own all men, and yet you, above all men, I've separated to myself. You belong to me in a special, a saving, a sacred way. And it's from there that we see exactly where our holiness comes from. It is a derived holiness. We come to recognize that when the infinitely holy God of the universe touches something that is unclean, he does not become defiled. It becomes holy. He looked at us as unholy people. He reached out his hand and he touched it and thereby you became holy because God has called you. He has set you apart. You are no longer common. You are no longer ordinary. You've been called apart from all that is profane, and disgusting, and despicable, and perverse in this world, because the one who called you is holy. But you must see that this is more than just a label. God hasn't just taken a man and placed a new label upon him, that to be holy, to be a saint, it isn't merely just to carry this title, but it's to be changed. We recognize that God has not only called us to be holy, he is making us holy. 
Sanctified is another biblical word for this. You're more familiar probably with that. To be sanctified is to be made holy. Again, separated from all that is ordinary and profane and corrupt, disordered in this world and devoted to God. Perhaps I can show you this most clearly when I show you how man became unholy in the first place. So I'll direct your attention back to the Garden of Eden. I love the first three chapters of the book of Genesis. I feel, I believe, possibly that God is leading us to return to Sunday night worship. I don't know the last time this church had full Sunday night worship. I feel perhaps God is leading me that direction. And I'll tell you, I feel like he's leading me to the book of Genesis. You think I move slowly through the book of Ephesians? Wait till I get a hold of the first three chapters of Genesis. We may be here for the rest of our lives. If you can't get the first three, book, first three chapters of Genesis right, your theology has no chance. So what we see there is that in that garden, God created man as special. He created man to live in perfect communion with him. Man had been set apart from the rest of creation. Man alone was the image bearer. Man alone was meant to represent God amongst all of his creation. Truly, man was upright and holy before God. And then comes Satan. What was the great lie of Satan? It wasn't about the fruit, dear children. You understand this, right? The fruit was off limits. God had told him, do not reach out your hand, for in the day that you do, you shall surely die. This man and women who knew holiness and happiness like we have not yet experienced. This man and this woman who were truly satisfied in the presence of God, they allowed the serpent to come and cause them to doubt the goodness of God. That's the root of it. When the serpent came and said, has God surely restricted you, truly restricted you from all the fruit? That's a lie. God commanded them to eat all of the fruit, but not the one. This is the number one tactic of the enemy. He takes the very law of God and he twists it. He makes us believe that it is something restrictive. It's something meant to hinder your happiness. So he comes to this man and this woman and he says, God doesn't want you to be happy. And then he calls them to doubt the truthfulness, the power in God's word. He says, well, and by the way, when you do this, you're not going to die. Tell me you haven't heard those same lies. God doesn't want you to be happy. Besides, what's going to hurt? It's not going to kill you. And in that moment when Adam reached out his hand and he took of that fruit, everything changed. The perfect image of God, the likeness of God that was seen in this man, it became distorted and broken. All of creation, actually, thrown into chaos and corruption and death and decay. All of this came flooding in at that one moment when this man doubted the goodness of God. He doubted that God knew the path to true happiness. He doubted that God even desired for his happiness. Because of this, all creation was thrown into chaos and corruption. This man was immediately separated from God. because He was so stained by guilt and sin. He was cut off from God, spiritually dead. Unable even to desire the right things any longer. Truly, this man became unholy. And in his unholiness, he could not come freely any longer into the presence of God. And yet all throughout the Old Testament, we see God continue to make provision through his holy priesthood as they come with the holy sacrifices into the holy temples on the holy days into the holy of holies. We see God consistently making provision for his people. He's setting aside these things. He's calling them to be holy for the sake of his holy people. He's calling them to be set aside, to be holy, to be used only for him so that people might have a way to come back into the presence of God. Are you seeing it? 
And yet it's only through his means. It's only through his provisions. Anyone that just ran into the Holy of Holies, they would be struck dead in an instant. He says, no, because you are still unholy. You must be cleansed. You must be washed. You must be made right. The guilt and the stain of sin, it must be taken away. And then comes Christ Jesus. The once and for all sacrifice. The true Lamb of God coming to take away the sins of the world. The great high priest. The true temple. The place where God most fully came to dwell with his people. He comes. And the curtain in the Holy of Holies, it's torn. Forty years later, the holy temple of God, it is destroyed. No longer a need for sacrifices because he's fulfilled it all. All that the Old Testament worship, that, that system was meant to point for, it was all fulfilled in him. There was no more need of these things because for those who had eyes to see, for those who could look beyond the physical and see to the spiritual reality that lay behind them, could see their greater need for true and ultimate and once and for all cleansing, they had served their purpose. They had prepared their hearts for the coming one, for the one that could fulfill all the things that the blood of bulls and lambs and goats could not do. They recognized that those things were a shadow and the substance had come. So when Christ comes, he promises those who are his that through his perfect life, substitutionary death, the power of his resurrection, he says, I will wash you clean. The guilt and the stain of sin will be removed once and for all. And more than this, you will find yourself clothed in my perfect righteousness for truly you will be holy. Therefore, you'll be welcomed freely into the presence of my father. In short, Jesus Christ came to undo. He came to set right everything that was disordered in the fall. Came to fix everything that Adam broke. That he would freely reconcile man to God. That he would rightly restore this holy relationship that we long for. The only place of true happiness. At the feet of God. That Jesus came to set right all that had been broken. Restoring in us even the very image of God. So what the Apostle Paul is saying here is that God chose us for this. From before the foundation of the world, God chose us and he set us aside for this very purpose. He chose us in Christ Jesus. He had to choose us in Christ Jesus because we were unlovely. We were unholy. We were far from blameless. He chose us in the Holy One. That in him, before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and blameless before him. This was a purpose for God in Christ for you before the beginning of time. Do you understand? That we should be holy and blameless. That Christ, that in Christ, we would be made right with God. That's the way I talk to men. Whenever I share the gospel now with people, I've stopped talking about their relationship with Jesus Christ. I've stopped talking to them about their, oftentimes, even their sin. And we, we laid out what the gospel was last week. But I begin, I begin in the very beginning with who God is. And whenever possible, I look this man in the eye and I tell him, you are not right with this God. But Jesus Christ came to make us right with God. Everything that Adam lost for us in the fall, Jesus Christ offers us freely. Now, the implications of this are truly breathtaking, but for now, we, we prepare to come to this table. Let me say this. That because of this, let me, let me read for you first, Ephesians 2.4. But God, being rich in mercy, because of the great love with which he has loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, he made us alive together with Christ. By grace, you have been saved. And he raised us up with him and seated us with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus. Do you understand the implications of what's being said here? That even now, even as you find yourself surrounded by spiritual darkness, even as you find there are days when the pull of your flesh and the empty promises of this world went out, 
even those days when you wallow. I'm not just talking about accidentally. I was listening to a praise and worship song this morning. Whenever I shower on Sunday mornings, bless my girl's heart, they're trying to sleep, but I'm blasting praise and worship music. And I was listening to one. It's been, it's, sometimes I'm guilty of not listening to the words of songs, and it's been one of my favorites. I've really enjoyed this song. There's this dude that comes in on the back end, and he's just wailing. But then I got to really listen to the lyrics this morning as I was shaving my head, and I realized he kept talking about our mistakes. He was talking about sin like it was a mud puddle we accidentally fell into. So that one's been deleted. But even for the child of God, you choose sin because you want sin. You choose sin because you think the thing standing before you will make you happy. So even as you intentionally waller in sin at times, According to the word of God, you are already, even now, seated with Christ in the heavenly places. Do you understand the weight of this? That God allowed you to continue on as a child of wrath for a season. And I, I, it's, it's easy for us to get frustrated with that. Say, God, if we were already yours, if there's never been a time when you didn't see us in Christ Jesus, if we had been set apart as a saint unto you from before the foundation of the world, why did you allow us to continue in sin for so long? Why did you allow us to run like a dog? Why did you allow us to reject your gospel? Why did you allow us to be a son of disobedience and a child of wrath for so long? Well, dear friends, firstly, I would remind you that every last one of those sins was committed against God. What he allowed you to do was spit in his face, to spurn his glory, to dishonor his name. But I submit to you the reason he did this was that we might be to the praise of his glorious grace. There would be no need of grace if you had not walked in sin. There would be no need of mercy if you were not deserving of wrath. We would not have a full view of God's justice, of his judgment, of his righteousness, of his holiness, were it not for his preordaining, foreordaining, sovereignly decreeing the fall and the continuance of sin for man. So he allowed us for a season, as heartbreaking as it is, he allowed us for a season to run like dogs, to continue as children of wrath, to reject him, even though in his mind, in his purposes, in his plans, we were already in Christ. And then at the appointed time, it happened. By the power of the Spirit of God, through the preaching of the Word of God, through broken vessels like us, God calls us from darkness to light, from death to life, and we are seated with Christ in the heavenly places. Do you understand? Right now, your butt's in Crosby, Texas, but spiritually you sit in heaven today. You're not an outcast there. You belong there because the God who is holy has placed his hand behind, upon you and said, you are mine. In heaven today, do you understand? You are as holy and blameless as you will ever be. I want you to see how this frees you up. No act of sin you commit in this lifetime will decrease your holiness by even a millimeter, even a fraction. No act of righteousness that you commit, that you carry out, will add to your righteousness, even a fraction. Right now, in heaven, you are as holy as any man can be. That's what Paul says in 1 Corinthians 6.11. You were washed. Notice the past tense of these verbs. You were washed. You were sanctified. That's made holy. You were justified in the name of Jesus Christ our Lord and by the Spirit of our God. It's a done deal. 
In Christ Jesus, you are completely and totally holy and blameless. God has made you holy. Listen to the words of Hebrew 10. Excuse me, Hebrews 10, beginning in verse 10. We're told that Christ came to do the will of the Father. This is, please go read this on your own. Please go study this on your own this week. People say, I don't give you enough time to write down my recommendations. This is my recommendation for today. Meditate on these words. Christ Jesus came to do the will of the Father. And by that will, we have been sanctified through the offering of the body of Jesus Christ once and for all. Every priest stands daily at his service, offering repeatedly the same sacrifices, which can never take away sins. You see the picture here? He's saying the priests in the Old Testament, every day they were having to come back. They could never sit down and rest because their job was never done because they could never have the sacrifice that could really deal with the problem. They never had the sacrifice that could really wash away sin. They never had the sacrifice that could appease the wrath of God. They never had the, the sacrifice that could make you once and for all holy. They could never rest. But when Christ had offered for all time a single sacrifice for sins, he sat down at the right hand of God, waiting from that time until his enemies should be made a footstool for his feet. For by a single offering, he has perfected for all time. Are you seeing the picture? It's done. He's sitting down. I don't need to work anymore. It's over. I've paid the price. They are clean. They are sanctified. They, are, they have been perfected for all time. But then what's he say? Those who are being sanctified. Well, which one is it? Have we been sanctified? Have we been purified once and for all? Or are we being sanctified? Precious saying he's talking about you here. You're the one for whom he has died. You're the one whom he makes intercession for. You're the one who has already been perfected. You're the one who is seated with him right now in the heavenly places. It's done. It's finished. No more coming back year after year. That's why we don't offer sacrifices in this place. You understand? The once and for all sacrifice has been done. And to pretend like the Lord's Supper is a new sacrificing of Christ Jesus, this is an abomination. This is an assault on the sufficiency of Christ, the completed nature of his work. No, we come to this table and we remember his completed work. We look forward to his glorious return. We recognize that in Christ Jesus, in his death, in his burial, in his resurrection, in his perfect life, that God has been satisfied and we have been sanctified now don't count this as nothing dear children you must understand i know it's we sit here right it's hard because again we don't feel holy we don't feel blameless we don't look very sanctified at times but don't count this as nothing because you need to know what this means this means that the god of the universe is no longer holding your sins against you do you understand he's no longer calling them to mind He's remembering them no more. He's never going to bring them up and accuse you with them. He's not going to allow anyone else to come and bring accusation against you. Christ Jesus makes sure of that. Your sins are gone. I don't know. I'll go look in the file. Let's look at the file and see. What sins do I have against Andrew Harpold? There's nothing there. Do you see the weight of this? Do you see how this sets you free to run in holiness? Before God, you are holy. He is free to bestow upon you all these spiritual blessings. How could these spiritual blessings be ours? Because we're in Christ. Because in Christ we're holy. And as holy ones in Christ, he is free to set us under the fount of his endless blessing. We're free to be happy in his presence. But again, I know we look around us and we don't look very holy. These words feel really good right here. 
They might be really encouraging during a worship service, but then we walk out there and we get punched in the mouth. The devil's waiting at the door and, oh, there you are. Whew, almost lost you for a minute. It's going to tempt us right back into these same things and we right back to this thinking, okay, well, we may be holy before God in heaven, but here on earth, it's a dogfight. By the Spirit of God, we have had a taste of heaven and we groan. We groan, and, and, you, and you believe me, right? I know I'm preaching to the choir on so much of this. You believe me that holiness is the only way to happiness. You know this. But you also know that that's a painful path. Because you know that sadly we've allowed ourselves to become addicted to the things of this world. It's, it, it's, it's like going to an adulteress and telling her that she has to break off her relationship with the man she's cheating on her husband with. There's going to be pain there. We have sold ourselves to the highest bidder. There's going to be pain in breaking off those relationships. And so it feels like a dogfight. We can't even want for the right things at times. We know that heaven is better. We know that holiness holds for us true happiness. But we struggle even here and even now. Dear children, that's why I tell you that he says that we are being sanctified. The author of Hebrews 10, he says we're being sanctified. He said you have been sanctified. You're already holy. You're already seated with God in heaven. And at the same time, you're being sanctified. You're being made holy. Do you see this? I think Paul has both of these pictures in mind when he says that in Christ Jesus, God has chosen us before the foundation of the world to be holy and blameless. I think it's both the positional holiness we have today before God. We stand before him as holy. We enjoy the blessings of the holy ones of God. But at the same time, he is making us into what we already are. This isn't psychological mumbo jumbo. I know the way the world throws out this kind of junk. Just look at your, what's that guy on Saturday Night Live? Somebody handy? You're good enough, you're smart enough, and gosh darn it, people like you. What's that guy's name? I don't know, man. This ain't it. We're not pretending like we're a unicorn. What? That's the other, th- no, I can't go down that road. It's not pretending that you're something that you're not. It's by the Spirit of God, the Word of God, the power of God growing into what you already are. You'll hear children say things like, you know, you're looking more and more like your father. People will say to children, you're looking more and more like your father every day. You're able to look to your father and see, that's what I will someday be. And even now I'm becoming. I'm being molded. I'm being shaped more and more in the image of God. And to accomplish this, Romans 6 tells us that Christ Jesus has set us free from slavery to sin. We have died to sin. Not only have we died to the curse of sin, which we have, Sin holds no, the, the law has no, has no curse, has no punishment, that any of the pain, any of the suffering, any of the sacrifice that we feel in this lifetime, we know that it is not the hand of judgment against, God, against us from God. It is the loving hand of discipline from our Father. He is disciplining us. He is molding us. He is shaping us. But at the same time, Romans 6 tells us that we've been set free from the bondage, the power of sin. It can't hold us down. It can't pit us to the ground. It can't force us to obey its whims any longer. We've been set free to walk, to pursue to run hard in holiness. Do you understand? What a horrible thing that would have been. The God of the universe says, you're holy in heaven today. I've given you desires for that holiness now. Now break yourself free. Wrestle yourself free from the hand of Satan and sin. And then perhaps you can accomplish some of this. That's not the picture at all. He says that by the working of Jesus Christ, he has set you free so that you are progressively becoming what you already are. You run hard. You run hard. This sums up the Christian life, doesn't it? 
You could sum up the Christian life like this. In the power of Christ Jesus, by the word of God and the working of the Spirit, I am becoming what I already are. Am. And because it's all bound up in, in God, because it's all found in the sufficiency of Christ, because it's all found in the decree and the promise and the plan and the purposes and the working of God's Spirit within us, we're assured that he who began a good work will be faithful to complete it. Do you see how that becomes a promise now? It can feel like a threat otherwise. Yeah, but I don't like the work that he's began. I don't like the things that he's promised. He says, I've promised your happiness. I've promised true joy. And I won't pull up short. It's not that his arms are too short. He hadn't started down this course and said, look, that guy's a bigger project than I expected. I just don't have the resources to get it done. It's not that we can do anything to disqualify ourselves. You weren't qualified to start. You were unholy and full of blame, and he chose you. So we can be guaranteed that he will complete it because he has attached his name to us. It's to the praise of his glorious grace. It's to the glory of God. What did he say to the people in Deuteronomy 7? He says, you have sullied my name long enough. To uphold the glory of my name. I am more zealous. I am more passionate. I am more jealous for my name, the glory of my name, than anything else in all, the, in all the world. And I've attached my name to you. You think I'm going to lose you? You think I'm going to let you fall away? You think I'm not going to bring you into holiness? You will be holy. We're almost done here. Ezekiel 36, beginning of verse 25. This, it, it hits different, okay? I continue to point back to the, to the passages in Jeremiah and Ezekiel where we hear the promises of the new covenant, and they feel like threats. I'm not going to lie. If we're not careful, they feel like threats. But listen to it in light of all that we've just said. I will sprinkle clean water on you, and you shall be clean from all uncleanliness. It's not a threat. I'm going to make you clean whether you like it or not. He says, I'm going to give you a desire for cleanliness, and then I will wash you. And from all your idols, I will cleanse you. And I will give you a new heart and a new spirit. That's the key to it all. The spirit of God coming to reside within us. The spirit who is holy. Put a new spirit within you. And I will remove your heart of stone from your flesh and give you a heart of flesh. And I will put my spirit within you. And I will cause you to walk in my statutes and be careful to obey my commandments. Do you see the beauty in this promise? Do you see why the people of the Old Testament, the true Old Testament saints, they longed for this. Because the law couldn't do this. Only the Spirit of God. They longed for that day when the greater sacrifice would come by the Spirit of God. He would cause us to walk in true holiness. And again, I tell you, it will hurt. There will be great suffering. There will be great pain. You see, there's, I think I'll conclude this here. There's an entire industry out there, an entire Christian industry out there that's devoted themselves to showing men how to become holy. And sadly, so much of it has found itself wrapped up in man-made schemes and programs and plans and efforts. And, and we particularly as men, I mean males, grown men, we have this tendency to just look at each other and say, well, just suck it up and be holy. but we don't have the ability in our flesh. Not only does it displease God, it leads to ruin, absolute ruin. 
And instead, what we see all throughout the scriptures, we see that God has ordained certain means by which he will bring you to holiness. One of those is suffering. I've tried to explain to you that the, de- the definition of suffering that I see all throughout scripture and that I see in my life is nothing more than the loss of ordinary, otherwise good things in exchange for greater things. The God of the universe says, I will take from you those things that have captured your heart for your happiness and your holiness. I will discipline you. I will beat your body. I will wear you down to the praise of my glorious grace that you may know what it means to delight in me and me alone to be truly happy in holiness. Then there's other ordinary means. We don't control those. We don't control when the suffering comes. We don't control when the discipline of God comes, but there's other more ordinary means. These consistent day in and day out means, and they're not sexy. They're not exciting. They're not the way that you build a church to 1,500 people overnight. But he said that, I will work through these ordinary means because it's all according to my grace. It's a gracious gift from me that I will make you holy. He says, it's according to these means. As you gather together with the people of God, I will make you holy. As you spend time on your face before me in prayer, I will make you holy. As you give yourself over to the study of my word, I will make you holy. As you remember your own baptism and watch as others are baptized, you will be made holy. And as you come to the table of the Lord, not just remembering his once and for all sacrifice, although we do that, not just looking forward to his return, although we do that, but you will meet with Christ. You will taste that which is best. That's why I call you to fast before we come to the Lord's Supper. I don't want your palate to be ruined by something else. I want you to come here starving for God. The reality is that I've I can't think of a man that I watched that had all the external signs, and again, it's not about external signs, but had the evidence in his life of true holiness that did not give himself over to these means. I've known a lot of people that proclaim the name of God and they have no evidence of holiness in their life whatsoever, and they abandon all of these means, or they treat it like a buffet. They take some and leave others. But dear children, don't you see, if this is the work of God, if this is the promise of God, it will only be accomplished in God's ways. And it isn't going to be all the way overnight. Again, I told you, being holy, being sanctified, it hurts. You don't want it to happen all all overnight. He says, I will do it slowly over time. I will strip away those things that you have given your heart to. I will make you more and more in the image of my son, Jesus Christ. I will restore in you the image of me, your God, the holy God of the universe. I will do this, and I will do this in my way, in my timing, according to my grace, through my means. So I invite you this morning to come. Come to this table trusting in him. Come to this table and feast upon him. Come to this table and rest in him. Come to this table and watch how you grow in him. Father God, we praise you and we thank you. We thank you for this table. We thank you for all that it represents and we thank you for the promise that while Christ is physically right now in heaven, he meets with us spiritually at this table. That's, that's the craziness of what's fixing to happen. Physically, we will come to a table and meet with Christ who is in heaven. We see the two worlds coming together in this place. That's the sacredness of what we do here. That's why there's such a heaviness and a sobriety and a seriousness about what we do because we see in this place a crossing over of the things that are true in heaven and the things that we long to be true here on earth. In Christ Jesus, he meets us here and he brings us a taste of home.
Would you give us that taste now? Would you help us to come with hearts that desire that? Help us to, Father, we, we need not be sinless, but help us to come with a right heart, heart that desires to delight in you. God, we love you. We trust you and we thank you. For it's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.